This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, we've got another wonderful podcast for our listeners today, and we're going to start with a story about a kitchen. But it's going to be nice. Then what are you doing with your kitchen color-wise, cabinets and tops? I went with a couple of different colors. So the top cabinets and the back wall of cabinets where the refrigerator will be, will be in a winter white. So that's going to be pretty bright. And then the lower cabinets in the L section are going to be more like a desert sand color. So a little bit in, maybe in that grayish kind of a family. The islands we're going to do in a hickory color with a, a matte, a nice light finish. So you'll be able to really see the grain in the wood. So yeah, so much lighter. And then our countertops, we decided to go with a quartzite a nice light color quartzite. So that's what we have going. It sounds interesting. <laughs> no, it's a nice look. It is. Yeah. It's an awesome look. She yeah. did a very good job of putting the colors together to make everything flow. See, sometimes when you, people just put some colors together, just see it on a magazine. And sometimes it doesn't flow with the house because we are leaving the existing flooring. She's got a very high end BR-111 cherry flooring that's down now we're not changing that well it'd be interesting because uh, point counterpoint the dark flooring and the and, and the rest of the house lightened up well one of the nicer things with the newer lighting today how it changes the the whole concept of it is that we're putting new led lights in these are the old well that's going to lighten up on the flooring then too right? absolutely yeah. uh-huh. but one of the nice things is that the lights that i put in give you different options for the k which is the brightness of the the light bulb yeah. itself now we're not going to go all the way up to five thousand because it looks like an office furniture place mm-hmm. sell furniture because it looks bright and white and gray yeah so, led gets pretty bright yeah yeah so we i like to turn it down to about three to 35k 3500k and what it's going to do is it's going to add a different dimension so it can work both with the new countertops cabinets and then the flooring mm-hmm. so it takes that orangish like she talked about the orange color prior to this right it gets out of the way right yeah. but another thing is is that see when people always ask me like kevin why do you put so many lights in a kitchen i said the reason why i'm putting lights in is not because I'm trying to overkill you and charge you more for lighting. I said, the key is, is that you don't want dark spots because that will change an image of a room, which means if you have 20 foot of room and you only put lights into seven or eight foot of it, make a big gap and then put it at the far end. Well, that gap 
doesn't have any light from the LED. It's dull. You see yeah. a shadowing. Uh-huh. That shadowing will change that. Yeah, area. it's a good. It's an easy concept to understand. I'm sure a lot of people buy into that, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And the key is this was my lesson that I learned several times building my homes and doing my homes over, is that when you're in the house, you don't want multiple light switches. You want to be able to turn them on and off. Kitchen, you want the romantic lighting. You definitely want to put on the dimmer switch. But then you want to have another switch just for pendant lights if you want pendant lights. Because sometimes people just want to turn that on and not have the abundance of light that I already put in there. There's times and places for everything you do in the kitchen. Now, Diane said she's always in the kitchen. You're going to have morning time, coffee in the morning. If you're going to be down there, you don't want to put all bright lights on at 6 in the morning or 5 in the morning when you get up. During dinner, uh, you want it full bright, so then you'll be going full bright. But having a light switch and convenience, the ease of just be able to turn one switch on, it makes life a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then uh, from there, uh, just knowing... Uh, design and I talked to Diane about one of the big things that you need to do is where you want to spend the most money, which is minimal, is a backsplash. A couple hundred dollars more for a better product that you're going to love. Well, the side benefit of what you're talking about, it has a tendency to drop your electric bill. Oh, yeah. It really does because you're, you're burning less electricity. I know Scott's going. going to love that lower electric bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> well, that's it. The whole thing is when you're doing things, you just want to make sure it's done right because if you don't exhaust options like i would bring a customer options to say here's what can and cannot happen yeah it might cost a little bit more money say an electric if you already have leds but the look of it you don't want to be upset with something you made a decision on that was wrong to cut, cut of course corners yeah. but if it's a minimal decision a low cost dollar average to do it you spend the money because it, it's still kitchens are a lot of money so today the, the price of kitchens i mean you could be anywhere from forty thousand to three hundred thousand i've done it in the past probably two years you could be anywhere from forty thousand <laughs> there's no way i'm ever going to be at three hundred thousand yeah it's true and but again it's what the homeowners want mm-hmm. and here's my advice to our listeners that are trying to get a grasp on if they're going to be doing their kitchen when your contractor comes in and provides what's called an allowance hey this is what it's going to cost for this kitchen to be installed that allowance is a way for that contractor to make money because if you have an envelope and it's going to be 10 foot by 12 foot design on a standard crown molding base buildup if those cabinets are two hundred thousand dollars or twenty dollars they're going to go in the same people get upset with me when i say it on the air because they say well listen why would you want to rip off a homeowner try to be upfront and honest with them because if you do that you're gonna get more jobs other contractors actually charge more depending upon the type of cabinet that's going in sometimes they do I mean, well, either I, that or they're marking up the cabinets. They're marking it up. Yeah, it's all about right. how am I going to make money is the whole right, bottom right, line. Right, right. I said there, there's a reason why we're always a year booked out. is because when you give people a fair price from the beginning, they're going to refer you, and you're going to get more work out of that than any advertising you're going to do if nobody knows who you are. It gets back to the old adage, honesty is the best policy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what Mm -hmm. we're going to do is we're actually uh, in the process of getting started and uh, we'll have some pictures so our listeners can understand what she went through to design her kitchen and how it's going to look when it's done. So we'd like to have you back on once we get started and talk a little bit further about this. Okay, that'd be awesome. I look forward to it. We're really excited about this big window that we're putting in, too. It's going to be awesome. I was going to save, but why don't we talk to our listeners and tell them what exactly what we're going to be doing that you wanted to do for your kitchen? Over our sink, we have a very, currently we have an, a very big window, but it's like a three-sectioned window. So it has a lot of panes and it has a lot of wood. One of my big dream ideas that we're going to do is make it one solid pane of glass, which I'm just so excited for. Can't wait for that. And something we've done that uh, I haven't done in this window by Provia. We're doing the Provia Indoor Picture Window with built-in blinds. Gorgeous looking, and it's just going to look fantastic. So 
We just ordered that window a few weeks ago, and Provia is on time and on schedule. So it brings the outside in. It does. Okay. Yeah, it absolutely does. I like that. I like that. Okay. Okay, Thank you so much. All right, we got a really interesting horror story today, right? All HVA systems are not created equal, and some of them can get botched up. Yeah, the installation from the beginning. Yeah. And I tell you, this is the greatest. I think horror story that we've ever done. So I, I know we talked about this prior, but I was just recently the back. Greatest horror, that would have to be the horror story hall of fame, right? So I was talking to buddy, my Matt, and I said, Hey, listen, I knew you're in the mechanical business. I said, what's one of your worst horror stories? And I'm like, yeah, he gives a couple of few ones. And I said, that's normal. So I said, let me send you a video of something that we've seen. We did on the air broadcasting, but I want to bring it up for our podcast listeners of the worst HVAC split system job you'll ever see in your entire life. Well, no, we talked about a bad one that was done on a house that you were doing major renovations. It's the same. Were yeah. you revisiting that? We're going to revisit it because it was only on broadcasting. Now we were, we're podcasting. Ah, so I want everybody okay. to okay. revisit one of the greatest jobs. Everybody to savor it, right? <laughs> yeah, this was crazy. Yeah. So how it really ended up was a Again, when we were in broadcasting, uh, the guy knew something about us. He actually contacted Tom Adams and Ken over Tom Adams, introduced us together, and uh, we helped him out. Bad, 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 I remember visiting this place. Yes. The homeowner already had it gutted. Now, what that means is when you walked into the house, to the right where we did all the work, there was no drywall. All you saw was studs. Right. So that gives us clean access to run our mechanical, electric plumbing that we need to get it inspected because the other contractor they threw off never got a permit. Like, how do you not get a permit? What more doesn't get a permit in his job? That house had major work done to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Beams we had to put in. There was a lot of work. I got the architect involved. So we started working on it. And I said, listen, these are my guys we're going to use. This is the sub for the plumbing, the mechanical, uh, electric. And here it is. Look, just pay the guys directly. I'm just trying to help you out. He said, well, listen, I got a mechanical guy. And he gave me a great deal. He said, oh, boy. But listen, if you want to use him, I'm not going to tell you no. But you saw the dates that I need him here. So as I kept saying to the guy I was talking to just a couple of days ago, who was a mechanical guy, I kept saying in the show, the drywall was down. We got the place there was no drywall did i tell you the drywall was down and he goes yeah i get it there's no drywall and i said so that makes it easy for any mechanical contractor if you're running mini splits or ductworks or line set you need to do they can run into between the walls and then we get it inspected then we get our insulation then we get it inspected then we get the drywall well it would have to be between the walls right because any other way you're going to see it pretty much okay and i will have the video on social media when people see this for homeowners you're just not going to believe it but videos don't lie nobody's spending thousands of dollars to do what this wannabe contractor did. So he left me hanging the first day. So that was on a Friday. And I know we were doing the show. We were recording, say it was a Thursday. So I said, listen, I'll do the show. And I'm just, I'm just going to take off. So we'll have off that weekend. But he said he's coming this weekend then because I need to get my inspections done. So I have it set up for Monday. The inspector's going to come to the job and take a look at it. So we get there on Monday because we need to get the installation up. We're doing it ourselves and we want to get it up. And as we get there, I hear one of the guys go, oh, you got to be kidding me. So again, did I tell you the siding was up, but inside the house, there was nothing there. So we should be able to run the the line sets. What they are is those, it looks like piping. One's going to be a a wire. One's going to have a copper line. It's going to run the Freon in there. And then you'll have a drain line and it's all wrapped up. Drain line is PVC, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a flex. You want to be able to drain it out because you can't run that drain into the system you have, which is public sewer. They've got to drain to the outside. That's what all townships are going to be requiring, especially Northampton where we're doing this. And as I run around the back, because the side just drips onto the ground or something. Yeah, well, you can put it in the gutter. You can drip it into Mm -hmm. the ground. There's different ways, but you can't put that line into a septic system or a public system. Public system, right. Mm -hmm. Septic system, you can, but you're going to overtax that system because you want to drain it out. (laughs) 
got to the back. So they had multiple areas where there were split systems set up. Those multiple sections are so that each room can be individually heated or air conditioning. But each unit has to have a line set, which is that copper line, the drain line. The whole works. Line. The whole works. Mm-hmm. It's going to run from that outside unit. looks like a big computer tower back in the old days. Inside the house where that unit is, and that unit will blow the heater cold that you need. So you're running multiple line sets throughout the house. So again, the drywall was down. So all you had to do is hook the unit on the outside of the siding, run the line set inside, and you have full access to all the floors because all the drywall was down. You run it up, you go to the next floor, you fire stop it, you do all your work. And that's what I was thinking this guy was doing. In contrary, he actually ran all the line set on the outside of the house. Now imagine you have a first or second floor, a gutter and soffit. I just took a video of the one, it goes up the siding wall, around the gable, over top of the roof, along the roof, up the other side of the gable, and then in. Then it, you could see the other part of the line set goes over, under the soffit, out from the soffit. It looks like white spaghetti all over his house. All done on the outside. And again, the drywall was down, so all he had to do was run to the inside. And this contractor thought he was doing a good job. Pretty much. I just remember him giving me his business card. I crumbled it up right in his face, and I said, you got to get out of the business. This is absolutely horrible. He goes, well, that's the way we do the jobs. And I said, well, you got to get out of the business. For any contractor listening, yeah, you're not going to believe it, but for homeowners, would you want all this white spaghetti over the gutter and around the gutter and all over the roof and If siding? anybody asked him to see his former job, he says, just drive around. If you find a house with the, with the tubing on the outside of the house, we did that job. And look, in some circumstances, you require it. <laughs> Yeah, I've done it before in Northeast Philly. I had somebody go down there and they'll run nice, clean, straight lines because it's all brick and block and you can't do it. I get that. But when you have a house where all the drywall's down and it's stick framed, which means two by fours, right. you can stick it inside the wall and run the right. lines at wherever you right. want. And now it's hidden. Is it really worth going through this? I mean, is that is a split system any better than regular HVAC system? Here's what I tell people is that if you're building an addition, you have one large room to try to tax your existing system. So you're going to need a locale. Put the split system in. Yeah. Just put, that's perfect for that. It's what it's designed for that. To put multiple. But this was the whole house. Yeah, he did all over the whole house. I don't know what his concept with that. When you just want to have one, not a big house. One centralized air conditioning unit, one air handler, one condensate unit, and then you run the ductwork. Call it a day. And you call it a day, yeah. which means you turn it on and the whole house gets yeah, turned right. on. With this, he put each bedroom had one. And this is what you're seeing in all the bedrooms. There was yeah, a first floor. I don't know what the purpose of that would be. Yeah. So uh, I'll have the video on our Instagram or Facebook, Your Valuable Home. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that, see what you think. But. It'll be up there. Well, a lot of people should have some really interesting thoughts about this. Now, listen, stick with us. Some people, including me in our audience, probably invest in crypto. And crypto is changing almost by the day. And we have two of my friends on. I call them the crypto mats, Matt C and Matt P, on to fill us in on what's happening with crypto in the first part of 2024. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we can never, ever heap enough praise on Provia products, like, say, their metal roofing. That's right. Provia Metal Roof replicates the classic look of cedar shake, quarried slate, and clay tile. Manufactured with 26-gauge galvanized steel and designed to withstand damaging hail, torrential rains, intense UV rays, and strong winds, a Provia Metal Roof is the last roof you'll ever need. With your roof covering 60% of your home's exterior, you'll appreciate the value of a Provia highly aesthetic metal roof that improves your home's curb appeal, provides 50 plus years of protection, requires little to no maintenance, and generates energy cost savings. And Provia's metal shake, slate, and barrel tile roof systems are made right here in the USA with domestically sourced steel, a portion of which is high quality recycled steel. <laughs> 
Hey, Ron, it is time for another fascinating featured segment. I know you have something really cool coming up. Yeah, this is, uh, this is incredible. As you, uh, you know, we've talked a number of times. You know I'm into crypto. I would suspect there are four types of listeners in our audience when it comes to cryptocurrency. One, the cautious investor. Two, the skeptic who has avoided or stopped investing in crypto over concern about the ups and downs in the market, and there's certainly been there. Three, the want-to-learns. I call them the want-to-learns who may be interested in crypto but have no guidance. Four, the deniers, those who think crypto is smoke and mirrors. So we have with us today two accomplished people who study, follow, invest in, believe in crypto. Matt C. is a high-level executive in the technology space who's taken reasoned approach to investing in crypto and studied the crypto market for more than how many years, Matt? Probably 12. 12 years. Okay, so you're in it up to your ears. Matt P. is a chemical engineer and crypto expert. He's been deeply involved in the crypto ecosystem for seven years as an analyst, investor, advisor, and builder. I want to be crystal clear that we are not here today to make buy or sell recommendations. That's not the purpose of this, okay? The sole purpose of this interview is to provide some clarity about what crypto is and the state of the market at the outset of 2024, because the market, it changes. Matt and Matt, welcome back to your valuable home. You've both been guests before, and it's great to have you back again. Thank you. Yeah, good to be back. Matt C., what interested you in crypto in the first place? Thank you. Really, it started, I mean, of course, everybody, well, most people in the tech space had heard of the advent of Bitcoin around 2012 and 13, but it wasn't until my clients started to ask us questions about use cases for the enterprise. And to be honest, there wasn't much out there for how businesses would use it, particularly around what we were seeing with Bitcoin. And then come around 15 and 16, incessantly, my son was bothering me about investing. And so I put that off a little bit. And finally, I jumped in around 17, but then did my due diligence during that time and looked back and I'm like, what occurred to me that we were in this macro environment similar to the dot com, but maybe 10x, 100x with the explosion of this transformation of the digital world. We all think that we were in a digital time with cell phones and the way people started to communicate with texting. But I learned that we don't see anything yet. Then you have the fastly growing AI space. And what happened during COVID, you saw this social transformation. So those three areas, the social, the digital, and you can add financial in there as well. With AI, to me, I was convinced that we're at this place of sort of like an explosion of technology where trillions of dollars are coming into AI, trillions come into crypto. And of course, it's volatile. You look at the dot-com, that thing blew up. Nobody was going to go shopping at Amazon for everything, but that blew up. And then only the strong survived, the people with real value. So that's how it came to be for me. And I'll tell you, I personally am no expert because I've never seen anything change so fast. So it's so dynamic. There's so much uncertainty. It involves government and global players. So it's a very exciting time to continue to learn in this space. Wasn't the original vision of crypto an unregulated financial network for making purchases and moving money? Yeah. So I think our best resource for understanding what the original vision of crypto was, is the Bitcoin white paper. And that was released in 2008. 
In the paper, Bitcoin is described as a peer-to-peer electronic cash system that allows for payments to be made without going through a third-party financial institution. The word unregulated is really core to the idea because requiring a trusted third party for issuance or, or settlement of the currency was regarded as a major weakness, especially given the state of the world in 2008 when Bitcoin was proposed with the financial collapse. Bitcoin allowed us to substitute cryptographic proofs in place of some opaque trust relationships that had a lot of value riding on them. Also, as part of that original vision, there were some other ideas that were presented, including the idea of digital value and digital property rights and having uh, a currency with transparent anti-inflationary supply and demand dynamics. I would add to that, the early adopters really viewed everything that Matt P. just said this is a way that I can protect my money and get it away from the money printers that was going around all around the world. So that sort of threw the gasoline on the fire in the early days. We can trace the development back to cryptographer David Chom, who first proposed the idea of a blockchain in the early 1980s. He himself also worked on various electronic cash protocols. The Bitcoin white paper draws upon the prior work of a few individuals as well, including Adam Back, who was researching proof-of-work-based systems to deal with email spam and denial-of-service attacks, and Wei Dai, who worked on a project called B-Money. You should also mention Nick Zabo's project BitGold and the research of Hal Finney as being instrumental in the creation of crypto. Build on the on the research of a lot of people, but remember, the Bitcoin white paper was authored by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, and that's just a presumed pseudonym uh, used by the person, or what I think is more likely, in, in my opinion, persons that were responsible for creating Bitcoin. But 15 years after the, the release of that paper, we still don't know the, the true identity of Bitcoin's creators. Well, in the early days, crypto created sort of a 21st century gold rush, and the market was largely populated by early adopters. The 2008 financial crash, after that, as Bitcoin became popular in 10 and 2011, that was the gold rush for people trying to get away from the demise of currency, fiat currencies. But you didn't really see the numbers that you see today, of course, but it was definitely people that were brave enough to jump in there because uh, just even protecting your coins on a server back then was very risky. There's a story about somebody buying a pizza, I think, in Brooklyn for 10,000 Bitcoin. So someone delivering a pizza, if they held on to it for 10 years, would have been the richest pizza delivery man ever. Yeah, now they own a whole chain of pizza parlors, right? (laughs) (laughs) There are also scammers in the space, too. Crypto assets hit a wall in the past year or two, largely as a result of the nefarious behavior of two individuals. What exactly happened there? There's been a lot of scams, including early days of Bitcoin. This is just another one, like with FTX. A lot of this is because of the environment of lack of legislation and lack of oversight. I think we're getting to a place where world governments are getting close to that. 80% of the world actually has a plan for crypto. We'll see what all those details are very soon, I believe. You know, I think the, the general public's understanding of what caused such issues in the market is largely based on some sort of media deception where we're led to kind of misattribute, you know, what really caused the issues. The failings that we saw over the past couple of years, these were not the result of 
crypto, that underlying technology. These were the result of traditional finance and regulatory, I would say failure, but really it's just a, a complete lack of oversight. But we saw that the same things happen that traditional finance always does. It rehypothecates assets, it creates and uses uh, illiquid assets as collateral for loans, uh, applying high leverage strategies and some outright fraud. None of these things are new. They had just had yet to run their course around crypto. I think to those with a deeper understanding of crypto, all these bankruptcies and high profile collapses were actually the perfect advertisement for cryptographic technology. These things bring transparency and the ability to conduct system wide audits uh, on these very large global systems. You know, none of the financial collapses prevented Bitcoin from continuing to produce blocks or decentralized finance protocols uh, from functioning. Crypto is the solution to all of the problems. It's not the problem itself. A lot of people could say, you know, bad actors in the crypto space, and I don't want to get involved in it. You know what? Think back to the real estate crisis when 2006, 2008, mortgages being packaged and everything crashed, especially out in the West, you know, with developments that were built that turned out being worth nothing. So, I mean, you can go through time and look at different various acts that happen in different segments of the economy. So crypto is not unusual in that regard. It's really not the crypto. It's these, and there's more to come. I, I mean, there, there'll be volatility and there's some things yet to be cleaned up in this space. Think about it like the dot-com bubble version. There'll be some adjustment here. One of the third largest by market cap. Just yesterday, the UN announced its concern about Tether. It's a stable coin out of Southeast Asia or somewhere in Asia. All of us that have looked into that have had some concerns because they just print more Tether coins sort of like the printer at, at our Fed and other countries. So when that happens and they buy Bitcoin, there's some air in there. The true assets like the Bitcoins and others, Ethereums, they'll go on. There'll be an adjustment in the chart, but it, it'll come back because they have utility. I think utility is the operative word, isn't it? Utility and value. But what you're saying is the storm is not over. It's There are going to be other rumblings in the sky. I think it's getting there. But we still don't have U.S. legislation. And I think the rest of the world sort of waiting on this. There's some crypto leaders, cryptocurrency leaders over, over at the World Economic Forum as we speak. The legislation has to come. And once that happens, it'll clean up the place a little bit. And I liken it to the dot com. That, that was sort of a disaster, too, what, the way people viewed it. Once this gets cleaned up, you'll know who the final players are. So those of us that have been close to it, like Matt P here, we can see that, you know, where to place our bets. Is blockchain the cornerstone piece of technology that makes crypto work? Yeah. So I guess when I say crypto, I, I mean cryptography or, or cryptographic asset, which is a little broader than the term cryptocurrency which would imply the properties of money as a, as a store of value, uh, unit or account, or uh, our medium of exchange, uh, in which case you might have to discuss monetary premium really being like kind of the, the cornerstone technology that makes it work. But for the sake of discussion and up until this point, I think blockchain is, is the foundational piece. And that's essentially what I'm betting on anyway. And I, it's not a big bet. I mean, I inch in every once in a while, but, but I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Can you define blockchain for our listeners? A blockchain is a database or a ledger 
And oftentimes these are distributed ledgers, meaning that the ability to view and update the ledger is distributed across many network participants and many geographies. And these participants come to consensus on the true state of the data uh, on that blockchain. So a block is just an ordered group of transactions. And these blocks are chained together via cryptographic hash functions, resulting in an immutable or unchangeable record of data. You have transactions that are ordered and grouped into blocks, and then blocks that are chained together linearly in time, thus blockchain. And there's some interesting and, uh, and useful blockchains that seem to have many of the same properties. So these things are decentralized. They are trustless or trust minimized. They're permissionless. You don't need someone's permission to uh, enter or exit the system. And they're also transparent. You have uh, good visibility in, into the actions of, of everyone using the network. What are the dominant blockchains out there today? I'll start with the top layer and hand it off to Matt P as uh, he goes much deeper and broader. So as I mentioned, Bitcoin, that was founded around 2009. That's the big elephant in the room. Ethereum comes next by market cap, but it also has uh, the most variety of applications. It has a very big ecosystem that Matt will go into these other layers that you know, applications are very broad and there's, there's things called smart contracts on it. Bitcoin itself is generally... Uh, viewed as a store of value, sort of like a digital gold. Then there's a few others, you know, the Tether, the stable coin that I mentioned is like third in market cap, but you have BNB, Solana and Cardano that are um, sort of what people claim to be the Ethereum alternative or nip at the heels. And then there's some payment rail like XRP, which uh, generally some people call it like the banker coin. A lot of banks have adopted that ab around the planet. So Matt, do you want to go deeper into to layer two? Yeah, I just want to say uh, that's a good rundown. And there's so many different metrics that we can use to to decide what what it means to be a dominant blockchain is that about number of users or or fees or the total value that's secured by the blockchain or the market cap of the underlying token there's a lot of different ways to think about that yeah for me one sector here that i would like to highlight are the ethereum layer twos these blockchains, these layer twos are basically part of the, the roadmap for scaling Ethereum for mainstream consumer adoption. So these are their own execution environments that allow us to make some cryptographic trade-offs in exchange for uh, very high speed and low fee environments. And so some examples of those would be Arbitrum or Optimism, ZK Sync or the, the Polygon EVM. Haven't there been a few recent positive developments in the crypto world? For example, without mentioning any names, are there more what you call whales entering the crypto waters? What is a whale, first of all? And are there more of them coming in, dipping their toes or their tails into the water? Sure. So I would call a, a whale would be a, a market participant that is holding significant value. You know, we, we have our existing whales in the crypto world. And if you look at on-chain data, these market participants only seem to be accumulating. They're not selling off their tokens. So they believe there's some upside here. When you talk about whales in the financial world in general, well, they're all here too. And without naming names, you have all of the big tech web two giants 
you have commercial banks, you have the vast majority of every central bank in the world. You have the largest trading firms and market makers and trillions of institutional capital that are now uh, able to come into the industry. These people, they all have a, a crypto strategy because blockchain makes their businesses more competitive, you know, eliminates or at least significantly reduces the trust relationships that seem to plague all of our systems. Because it eliminates the middleman, does it add the profitability for the people who adopt it? Without naming a crypto, it depends. I would answer that that way. There are some blockchains that have very low costs, and there's some that actually it's expensive to have a transaction. So I think the answer to that is it depends, but it can. That's what institutions have to, especially the enterprise and banking, have to evaluate to make sure that if it's a value transaction, like um, a large bank transfer or something, that they're not paying a huge percentage to transfer money from a bank to bank. And I mean, I think that JP Morgan even created their own crypto to move money to partner banks, inter-department. But externally, like for instance, you wouldn't really save any money moving Bitcoin around. Right. I gotcha. Okay. So it's a yes or no answer. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Well, there was a big deal that happened in the crypto world just about a week ago. U.S. SEC's approval of a Bitcoin ETF. As you opened this podcast, there's been a lot of naysayers in the space. Some of my friends, even in the tech space, would just say, well, Bitcoin is just air. And in a lot of ways, you can call fiat currency just air because there's nothing backing it. But this essentially is not only a testament to the fact that the big big players in the space and investment firms view this, this as a... Um, a futuristic asset. And it also opens the opportunity for mainstream investors to move into it in what they view as a safe space. We'll see how that turns out. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting development to watch over the next six months to a year, I would, I would imagine. Well, till now, the way to buy and store crypto has been through exchanges, of which there are many. So are the exchanges generally secure? Ron, I'm going to agree with you here that I think there's a strong body of evidence that the remaining centralized exchanges, particularly the large U.S. public companies like Coinbase that have proven to be an aligned ecosystem actor, are extensively audited being U.S. public companies and have no known history of any of the nefarious dealings that we've seen, like running a, a fractional reserve or something like that, where uh, only a fraction of your deposits are backed. An exchange like Kraken has similarly been uh, been a good U.S.-based exchange. But the truth is that deep down, even with that strong body of evidence, the answer is that we don't know. We think so. And for many investors, buying and storing crypto on centralized exchanges is going to be the appropriate option. But remember that this introduces a trusted third party. Uh, this was the weakness that was identified in the Bitcoin white paper. And it limits your ability to actually use elements of crypto, decentralized finance protocols, or buying NFTs, rather than just passively holding crypto in a centralized wallet. With what seems like the beginning of a march to classic custodial accounts, hopefully, with the approval of the Bitcoin ETF, will buying and storing crypto become more secure? As things get adopted and, and what appears to be the direction of global banks to be a part of this, I think there's going to be opportunities 
for them to build. And uh, there's some rumors of things coming live already of ways for you to store it like a bank account and maybe even get interest. Um, you can do that on, on, on a blockchain as well. I would say if you look at like BlackRock has a partnership with Coinbase, um, that's already setting up sort of the rails of having a more secure exchange. But until legislation comes up, we can move forward with the market with, with full participation. It won't be secure until we have sort of like an FDIC protection. Do you see that happening? Well, I think in certain cases, certain assets, like like you see with the 12 people that were able to get an, uh, an ETF, I think if it's going to become an asset class in banks, it will be viewed as such something worthy of having your deposit protected. Will crypto investors who are with the exchanges right now be able to eventually move their assets to custodial accounts? I, I think so. And I think that there's going to be the uh, OGs, the the early adopters that there's going to be a lot of um, people that keep them on cold storage wallets. Matt, what would you say? Um, yeah, I think whatever the market demands will be available. So sure, there will be a lot of trusted uh, custodians out there that'll help people secure crypto more safely. I also think that you, you'll you see wallet technology and, and user experience kind of always be improving. And so the average user can have a lot more confidence than they would today about being their own custodian. So yeah, I, I think we remove a, a lot of friction in the next couple of years. What do both of you see as the full potential of crypto? These are really exciting times. Um, we're basically seeing crypto slowly, not replacing, but merging with our legacy financial system. These systems are growing up and scaling to allow the everyday user, and we're gonna onboard uh, many new ones. Uh, we're gonna allow them to use crypto in a really fast, low fee environment. It's going to completely change the economy. This is a foundation for a new digitally native financial system that moves at the speed of the internet. It's going to be important for its synergies with other technologies also. AI is uh, is coming of age right at the same time. We're going to be able to, to, to govern the use of these AI and large language models with crypto. It's going to be really important technology so that we can actually leverage AI um, for some positive use cases. But generally, you're going to see the tokenization, I think, of just about everything. There will be a, an on-chain representation of your stocks, your bonds, basically anything that requires really strong property rights, where we want to be able to have these re-engineered trust relationships and transparency and better risk management. So crypto is is the future. I can't say much more than that. I mean, and I think that the um, the real opportunity is the tokenization of everything, making making what we own today much more secure because of the consensus mechanisms in blockchain. Transparent home title insurance could potentially go away things like that. But one of the great, for me, when I look at, you know, what does this do for the world? There's about 1.5 billion people on the planet that have no access to banking. The potential for economic and an economic explosion because the world will have access to bank banking fully. So that's a huge chunk of our population doesn't have an opportunity right now until blockchain. I'm excited for what it will do for people, for economies that are forgotten, and for the world. I call these guys the crypto mats because <laughs> they know this stuff cold. So 
Matt P., you would like to be gotten in touch with because you consult. Yeah, you can actually just email us uh, here at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net and we'll get all the information over to the crypto matches, you call them, and we'll make your life a lot easier. Thank you, guys. It was fun. Thanks. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class. Entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 